Chapter Twenty Three of the Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter Twenty Three. Some hours later, Estelle Redmond lay on the couch in her dressing room with closed eyes and throbbing temples. She heard the voices of the servants as they moved quietly about, setting the house to rights, and submitted unresistingly to the ministrations of Josephine and the cologne bottle. The touch of the maid's cool fingers was pleasant to her hot forehead, and their slow, regular motion insensibly soothing. But at last her mistress turned away her head and motioned her to stop. "'Thank you, Josephine,' she said gently. "'It was very refreshing. If you will leave me alone now, I think I can sleep.' and the maid smoothed the crushed pillow and noiselessly departed. The winter twilight deepened, and still she lay motionless, gazing with wide, sleepless eyes at the gathering shadows. The room was filled with ghosts, persistent in their silent obtrusiveness. The ghosts brought pictures with them, a constantly changing panorama which would not be ignored. Again and again it passed before her with increasing distinctness. She saw a little girl, at first systematically neglected, and left to pick up what crumbs of knowledge she could, and then, grown older, a subject of discussion between her father and his friends. She heard the child's points checked off one by one, eyes, hair, complexion, and one man say with a coarse laugh, "'By Jove, St. John, she'll be your strongest card. Better invest a little money in her.' Well, the money had been spent lavishly, and Estelle understood now how profitable the investment had been. She recalled the winter in Egypt, and the hurried flight thence one night. That was the year her father gave her the opals, with a tender little speech about her mother, and the jewels she had left in his keeping for her little girl. And she had guarded them carefully even during the period of poverty and loneliness in Paris. Now she doubted whether her mother had ever seen them, and was oppressed by their possession. She remembered Berlin, and her horrified awakening, also Paris, and the happiness which had come to her there. And always, when the scene of retrospection changed from country to country, two dominant figures stood beside her in the foreground, her father and Count Waldmir. Estelle turned restlessly. Was there no peace in the world? She heard her husband ascend the stairs and pass into her sitting-room. His step, she noted, had become singularly slow of late. The clock struck six. At ten she would receive Count Waldmir. Estelle sat silently upright with clenched hands and burning cheeks. In his own house, she said, glancing toward the next door. His own house. She sat for some minutes on the edge of the couch, gazing at the portiere which hung at the communicating door. As she looked, a strange sensation of peace and security gradually replaced the turmoil of her mind, and her lips curved in a tremulous smile. After a moment she rose and moved slowly towards the door. "'I'll tell him,' she whispered as she crossed the room. "'Why, of course. It's very easy. I'll tell him everything myself, and he'll understand. He'll be very sorry, but he'll understand.' Her husband sat upon a couch beside the fire, leaning back against the soft pillows and watching the flickering light of the burning logs. He did not hear Mrs. Redmond raise the portier and enter, for he was absorbed in thought. Halfway across the room she paused uncertainly. 
How tired he looked, how very tired. John, she said softly. The secretary turned quickly. Room for two, he said, holding out his arms. Room for two, Estelle. He drew her down upon the couch beside him, her head upon his shoulder. One arm was about her waist, the other held her soft white hand, and occasionally raised it to his lips. John, she repeated, and again paused irresolute. The secretary looked at his wife and smiled. It was a smile which came from his heart and drove from his face the lines of care. In his eyes shone love, boundless, generous, and capable of much endurance, a love based on faith and secure in its utter confidence. "'Is there anything especial, dearest?' he said, the arm about her waist tightening a little. Mrs. Redmond made an ineffectual effort to speak. Her breath came quickly, and she was oppressed with a sensation of smothering. Only a moment she hesitated, then looked up into his eyes with an answering smile. "'No, John,' she said gently. "'I wanted to be with you.' The log blazed up cheerfully, its rosy light falling upon the white folds of her dressing-gown and touching gently her brow and hair. "'Estelle,' said the secretary slowly, "'would you like to go abroad?' "'For the summer, dear?' "'For as long as you please. "'But could you be spared indefinitely, John?' "'I think so,' he said regretfully. "'In fact, Estelle, I think I will be spared altogether. "'I am going to resign.' "'What?' Mrs. Redmond sat upright and pushed back her hair. "'To resign?' she repeated. "'Do you mind so much giving up your high estate, my dear? "'I am sorry.' "'It isn't that,' she said breathlessly. You know I don't mind anything as long as we are together. But why are you going to do it? Tell me, John. I am getting old, he replied slowly. Official life is too much for me. Since Lee disappeared, I trust nobody, believe in nobody, confide in nobody, except you, dear, always excepting you. John, she said, resuming her position within his arms. It's strange about Mr. Lee, isn't it? Very strange, Estelle. Do you believe him guilty? I don't know, he returned. I don't know, dear. I hope, if he is guilty, he may never be found. I would rather think of him with the benefit of a doubt than with the certainty of conviction. Why, John? He was such a fine young fellow, so clean-cut and straightforward. I could not help being much interested in him, and if any one I have loved and trusted deceives me, for any reason, I think, dear, I had rather not know it. I am not so strong as I once was, and it is that sort of thing which takes the life out of a man. Yes, she said tremulously. Yes. With all the circumstantial evidence against young Lee, my better judgment tells me he is not guilty, but a victim to something that will yet be explained. But as I said— he continued, drawing her closer. I am not so young, nor so strong, as I once was. Things worry me. I don't suppose I am as capable of handling vexatious problems as I used to be. And so, dear, I'm going to resign. They won't let you, she said, speaking with conviction. The President would never accept your resignation. On the contrary, Estelle, he would be very willing. Our relations are not cordial. This morning at the White House, before the diplomatic reception, we had a most unpleasant interview. Don't ask me to tell you about it. 
I had thought him my staunch friend until lately, and therein lies the sting. Oh, she cried, I hate him, I hate him. Hush, dear, perhaps he is right. He is troubled as well as I, for this Roostchuk matter is of vital importance. The loss of the papers just now affects the integrity of the government, his honor, and most of all mine, Estelle, for they were in my hands for safekeeping. And all this, she said bitterly, comes of a paper, a miserable paper which may be found at any time. Ah, he replied, I would take a new lease on life, little girl, if I could have it in my hands together with the synopsis the President gave me of his policy. You remember I told you about it, and how it disappeared also. She remembered very well. But, John, she said timidly, I can't see what great harm is done if it has been stolen. Isn't it just a tempest in a teapot which will blow over shortly? It seems to me there is a tremendous excitement about a very little matter, after all. Estelle, he said, turning back the lace on her loose sleeve, and watching the play of the firelight upon her arm. Do you understand what war means? I think so, John. Well, if the stolen paper should be in the possession of the Russian government, in six months or less this country would be involved in a war which might become international. There would be fatherless children and widows, sacrifice of human life, and unutterable horrors you could not even imagine. Now do you understand the President's attitude? She did not reply, and he continued quietly. The country needs a more vigorous man to bring it safely through this crisis. I have been put in a position of great trust, weighed and found wanting. So, dearest, I am going to resign, and Rivers will be made Secretary of State. Ah! The exclamation was expressive, and the secretary smiled sadly. You don't like him, he said. You don't want to see him in my place, filling it more efficiently than I have done. Is that it, dear? Well, we won't stay here. I think I would not enjoy myself. We'll go abroad, you and I. After all, we have each other. I will not be sorry to have done with public life. I don't like leaving under a cloud, that's all. But, John, will you play me something, Estelle? We won't talk any more just now. Very soon I must dress and go out. I wish I had not told Bird I would come. I have a fancy for a little music, and there's none so sweet as yours. So if you don't mind... She put her arms about his neck and laid her cheek to his. John, she said brokenly, you will never, never know how much I love you. And the secretary held her close, oblivious to everything except the present moment. Now, she continued, raising a flushed face and speaking quietly, put your head on this pillow, so, that poor head which aches from so much thinking. Perhaps things will come out right after all, dear. I will play very softly, and you shall go to sleep. I'll wake you in time to dress. Is dinner at eight? Play the old Scotch airs, Estelle, he said as she opened the piano. I like them best. So Mrs. Redmond played the old Scotch airs, and the secretary listened dreamily. Softer and softer grew the music, until at last it ceased entirely. The fire snapped and sparkled appreciatively, but the secretary was asleep. His wife crossed the room and sank upon her knees beside the couch, her head upon the pillow close to his. Mechanically she repeated his words in reference to David Lee. If one I love has deceived me, 
I would rather never know it. How worn he looked. His hand, laying half open upon his knee, was almost transparent in the fitful light of the fire, and now and then the fingers twitched nervously. The half-hour struck. At seven she must wake him. At eight he would be gone, taking with him all her sense of strength and security. At nine she must dress. At ten. How the time flew. The secretary stirred in his sleep. She rose and, leaning over the couch, smoothed his hair caressingly, adroitly moving the pillow to a more comfortable position and touching his forehead gently with her lips. Judas, she murmured as she returned to the piano. But the fingers which pressed the keys trembled and produced discord, for the little devils which lurk in the background of life had leaped upon Mrs. Redmond, and she winced before the attack. They are named regret and remorse. Their arrows are poisoned, and their swords two-edged. They are very busy little devils, too, for they neglect nobody, and constantly pay a great many visits during the day and night. End of chapter 23